Amen. This morning we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. In fact, Blake and Kara Sherman are back from a month of training and preparation to go on the mission field, and Blake is going to be leading us as we eat and drink together in just a few minutes. But we're glad to have them back. Where are you, Blake? I know you're here. There's Kara. Did Blake skip church? He's be right back? Are you kidding me? Oh, man. (laughs) Great timing, huh? Oh, listen. It's a holy time. It's a holy time when we break bread and we observe the Lord's Supper, remembering the Lord's death. In fact, a passage that many of you have heard or read many times right here, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23, says this. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, that very night, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper looks back. It looks back on the death of Jesus Christ. When he's on Calvary and he's bearing our sins, his blood is spilled and that blood cleanses us from every sin. It's our salvation hanging there on that cross. And they bury Jesus, but he conquers not just sin, but death itself in the resurrection. He is the living Lord. And so we look back on the one who was crucified and knowing that he's alive, we look forward to when he comes. We stand between the times. We remember what he's done and we look forward to when he's going to come. No matter what pain is in your life, what trouble might be in your life, it's part of that larger story if you're a follower of Christ. So you can persevere with hope and even joy in the midst of it all if you remember that your sins have been wiped away that your Lord has conquered death and that he is coming to redeem us all and we will live with God forever and ever. When we know that, when we know that, it changes everything and we have peace. And as we eat and drink this morning, it is a reminder of what Jesus did and a reminder that Jesus is coming. So it ought to be a time of, of deep, comfort and joy and encouragement to all of us. Unfortunately, it isn't. Not for all of us. Some years ago, I was in Dallas, and I was leading a congregation in the Lord's Supper. And I noticed that as the trays were being passed, there was a man sitting in front of me about four or five rows deep who took the trays and passed them on to the next person. He didn't take the bread, didn't take the cup. And as we were eating and drinking, his head was bowed. He was frozen, didn't move, except every now and then 
He'd raise his hand and wipe the moisture from his eyes that were tightly shut. I couldn't let that go. As unobtrusively as I could, after the service, I made my way over to him. And I said, I noticed that you didn't take the Lord's Supper. And he said, that's because I kept reading. What do you mean? He said, you read four verses, but I kept reading. That's why I didn't take the Lord's Supper. Look at the next verse, verse 27. Paul says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning in regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. He said, that's me. I'm unworthy. That's why I didn't take. That's why I didn't participate. And I said, that's not what the text says. It doesn't say if you're unworthy, you can't eat and drink. We're all unworthy. We're all sinners. He said, you don't understand. You don't understand what I've done, and you don't understand the life I've lived. I'm a Christian, he said, but I'm a sad excuse for a Christian. I said, it doesn't matter what you've done or the life you've lived. Do you, do you put your hope in Jesus Christ? I said, yes. Well, you are unworthy, but you are fit to eat and drink with everyone else. Paul doesn't say if you are unworthy, you're sinning. He says if you observe the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's a very different thing. The word unworthy, it's an adverb in Greek. It means, if you translate literally, unworthily. It also can mean carelessly. And what Paul is talking about is someone observing the Lord's Supper with the wrong attitude and in a completely wrong way. I suppose there are thousands of ways we could do it. I've seen it happen. I've seen it in churches where they'll tell you, if you're not part of this church or at least part of this denomination, we ask you not to participate, even though you're a believer in Jesus. That's an unworthy way of observing the Lord's Supper, in my opinion. I've seen parents with their little children saying, here, take the cup. It's grape juice. You'll like it. Doesn't it taste good? Wow, that totally misses the point. So there are lots of ways in which we can miss the point entirely of what Jesus did on the cross to save us and miss the point of the Lord's Supper. But what's interesting to me is the particular It's a particular sin that Paul has in mind. He's saying you're not eating and drinking in a worthy manner. He's not saying that you're unworthy, therefore you shouldn't eat. We're all unworthy. He's saying in an unworthy manner. But he tells us what that is. If you look back in verse 17, in the following directives, he says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. 
In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Divisions, he says. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another goes drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. See, we think of, we think of the Lord's Supper as just the sharing of this small amount of bread and drinking this tiny amount of grape juice. And it is that, but in the early church, it was part of a much larger event. It was called the agape or the love feast. The church would come together and they would have a meal together. And then at the end of that meal, they would observe what we call the Lord's Supper. At least that's what the church usually did. But Corinth was different. Corinth was a stratified society. It was a city where you had very wealthy people and very poor people, slaves, and everyone in between. They're very conscious about social distinctions, and the church in Corinth bought into that. So they made a lot of distinctions among people, who's rich, who's powerful, who's educated, and who's not. They made those distinctions, and they brought them into the church. So how did they practice the agape, the love feast. Well, don't envision a Baptist potluck dinner. It didn't work like that. Instead, it worked like this. The wealthy people didn't work at all. And they would gather together. Usually they'd gather at a, at a wealthy person's home because that's the place that Christians could meet. It was large enough to accommodate people. And it was structured in such a way that you had an inner room. And that's where the wealthy people would go to eat. And they would eat the food that they brought. That was how you did it. They would bring their food and they would eat it together. They would drink together. And this would all begin in the early afternoon. Say 2 o'clock, they come together. And so they're eating and they're drinking in this fine food and the best of wine because they can afford it. Sometime later in the day, you would find shop owners or other business people who perhaps on the Lord's day when they come together, the church came together like this, they could, they could close early and they could go to worship. Remember back then, stores weren't closed on the Lord's day. You know, and people didn't have days off the way we have days off. So, so they would have to close things early and they would come in and they would bring their food. It wouldn't be quite what the wealthy people brought, but it would still be, uh, you know, still halfway decent. And they would come together and, and they would begin to eat and they would fellowship with each other. Maybe not in that inner room. There was an outer room as, as well, and they might be in that outer room but this would go on for a period of time. So let's say they got there around five o'clock. What about the poor? What about especially the slaves? Well, they couldn't come till much later. Sometimes at night, even late at night before they could come. And when they came, 
They may not have any food to bring at all, or if they did, it would be something very, very humble. So when they arrived to the love feast, what did they find? They found brother and sister Christians gathered who were full from all their fine food, some of them drunk from all the wine they had imbibed, and nothing was left for them. And so they come to this celebration, and it's no celebration for them. Instead, they feel humiliated. At that moment, they feel all the more poor and on the outside. In fact, they were literally most likely on the outside. The room, this, this, a house like this could seat maybe 40 people. They may have actually been on the outside of that in the courtyard. Maybe they could fit into the outer room. And then they call everyone together for the Lord's Supper. And they celebrate the one who not only atoned for our sins, but according to Paul, through his own body, tore down the wall that divided Jew and Gentile, tore down the distinctions among human beings, and they're celebrating the Lord's Supper while living with those distinctions, actually embracing those distinctions and dishonoring people. Paul says, you are not eating the Lord's Supper. Not when you behave like that. You are not to come together and observe the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Can they be unworthy? Can they be sinners? Of course they can. Jesus died for sinners. But you are not to show the kind of irreverence and the contempt for your brothers and sisters that you're showing here. That's not the Lord's Supper. I think this was especially important to Paul because of his own background. He was Rabbi Saul, and rabbis in the first century were known to pray a very famous daily prayer that included thanks that God has not, did not create them a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That's Rabbi Saul. Then he meets Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified for every tribe and tongue. He meets Jesus Christ. He's transformed and he writes to the church in Galatia that there is no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, no male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. The old distinctions are obliterated. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand anything about the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you don't understand the cross, then you can't observe the Lord's Supper in a fitting manner. It is unworthy. The way you do it is a contradiction to the truth. What this tells us is that the Lord's Supper is about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and our God. It's also about our relationship with each other. And they go together. We can't have one without the other. Some weeks ago, I mentioned Jackie Robinson. When Martin Luther King Jr. was still a little boy, 
before the civil rights movement had taken off, Jackie Robinson crossed the color line in Major League Baseball. He did it with such grace and such courage that today virtually every American considers him a hero. He was that, but no one thought him a hero at that time, or at least most of white America didn't think him a hero. He faced constant death threats, and, and when he played, people would be screaming out racist insults. It was, it was something that only a man of deep integrity and strength of character could have endured. And I'm telling you, one part of that was his Christian faith, because Jackie Robinson was a committed Christian. In 1947 or 48, the accounts differ, but Jackie Robinson was playing in Cincinnati. He made an error, and the crowd just goes wild. They start screaming at him, and all the racism and all the threatening anger just explodes over him as he stands there on the field, there at second base. Playing shortstop is Pee Wee Reese. He's a southern boy, also a Christian. The movie 42 depicts this. It actually happened. He walks over to Jackie Robinson, puts his arm around him, turns to the stands and just look at the people who then go silent. There's a statue in New York commemorating this event where you've got Pee Wee Reese with his arm around Jackie Robinson. Robinson himself sometime later said, that arm around my shoulder saved my career. He was a strong man. He was a strong man, but he needed another to stand with him. These were two Christian men who understood something about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And when we receive the Lord's Supper, we need to remember it's about what Jesus did for us, but it's about what Jesus does among us. I was talking to a friend some time ago, and he asked me how things were going at First Woodway. And I said, well, you know, I'm trying not to mess it up. That's what I thought. I'm trying not to mess it up. Well, are you enjoying it? I said, I'm loving it. I said, I love this church. Why? I said, let me tell you why. I said, a couple of years ago, a man who has since passed away was sitting in his wheelchair in our commons area. He'd been coming to the church for quite some time, usually disheveled, and I wouldn't be surprised if some children found him frightening. I mean, he was kind of scary looking, honestly. But his health had declined, and he's sitting in the wheelchair in the commons, and his feet are bare because his feet are swollen and the skin is cracked, and actually they had begun to bleed, and his blood dripped beneath his wheelchair on the floor. Now, I do know of churches where they don't really want that kind of person. Let's, let's get things straightened up first. I do know of churches like that. But no church like that 
should ever think they observe the Lord's Supper because it's not the Lord's Supper they observe if they don't understand the body, if they don't discern the body, that is, the people of God. A staff member went and tended to him, had a towel and cleaned up the blood off the floor, and one of our church members came up with a big smile, just cheerfully said, hey, you need to come to our Sunday school class grabbed his wheelchair and pushed it in the elevator, took him up to the third floor and pushed him into the class where everybody greeted him. Why do I love this church? It's because it is a church that has people like that. That's why I love it. Is First Woodway perfect? No, but that's the model of who we're to be. If Jesus tears down the wall that divides people, then Class shouldn't divide us. Rich or poor, doesn't count. Black or white, doesn't count. Country of origin, doesn't matter. None of that matters. Everyone who puts their hope in Jesus Christ, their brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what the Lord's Supper points to. That's what it points to. Now, it's not, it's not as if it's about us being loving people. That's, that's really not it. It's all about Jesus Christ. We have some instruments on stage. If all those instruments were, were tuned to the same fork, they would all be in tune with one another, right? And when we observe the Lord's Supper and we call to mind everything that Jesus did for us at Calvary and in the resurrection, then we are attuning ourselves to him. And if we love Christ and we are centered on Christ, then it is inevitable that we look at people differently and we treat people differently. The Lord's Supper does that for us. When we remember him, it gives us new eyes to see. I really believe that. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, it's not just a ritual, an empty ritual, but instead it's a moment in which we can connect with God, truly connect with God. Do you know theologians argue about how that happens? They argue about the nature of the Lord's Supper. Is, is Jesus literally present in the elements or not? And, and there's all kinds of discussion about how it is that God blesses his people through the Lord's Supper. I don't know how the Lord does it, and I can't logically explain it, but I have a picture in my mind that helps me to believe it and to take it home to my heart when I eat and drink. My wife and I, Linda, we were in Washington, D.C., and we were there at the mall, and we walked through the World War II uh, park that was there, a memorial that was there. And how many of you have been there? Some of you have been there? Okay. Okay. A number of you have. You, you just have to be there to understand how emotional it can be. I was surprised. I was, I was totally surprised by that. I was fighting back tears the entire time. I wasn't alive when World War II happened, and I hope you knew that without me telling you. I wasn't alive, but somehow 
Somehow it seemed so very personal, and I felt this deep gratitude for the soldiers who had fought, and, and it was emotional. And we walk a little further, and we come to the Vietnam Memorial. Have you ever seen the Vietnam Memorial? How many of you have seen it? Okay, a lot of you have. I don't know if you've seen it in person. It's a wall, and on that wall are inscribed the names of every military person who died in the Vietnam War. Once again, I, I, was, I was shocked by how emotional it was to stand in front of that wall and to see those names. I didn't personally lose a friend in Vietnam, but I have friends who did. And just that, just that knowledge and to see the names and know there's a story with each of those names. There are families who connect with each name. It, you can't. You can't hold back tears. Sometime later, I saw a painting of someone, no doubt a veteran, standing before the Vietnam Memorial. And when I saw that, I thought, that's what happens at the Lord's Supper. He's extending his hand and he's touching the wall. And as he touches it, you see his fallen comrades appearing. His hand's touching his friend's hand. I don't know how God ministers through the Lord's Supper, but that picture helps me, it helps me to believe it to experience it, that when I receive the, the bread and the cup, it's like I'm reaching out my hand and the Lord's hand is there. There's one who died for me, and I know his name, and he died for you, and he knows all of our names. Jesus is present Jesus connects with us as we eat and as we drink. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to take our place on that cross and to bear our sins and to carry them to the tomb and then conquer them in the resurrection. Lord, we thank you for salvation through Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we know you are present by your spirit and you have asked us to remember you by eating and drinking, to remember what you've done and to continue doing so until you return. And so that's what we do today. And what, what we ask, Lord, is that you would visit us, that you would visit us, that you would bring the grace that each one of us so much needs.